You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Streets of Fire engulf the Monuments Men on a mission. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Marion will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode, when we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and there's nothing wrong with going nowhere, baby. But we should be going nowhere fast. And I am Adam Thomas, and I can dream about you. Top 100. <laughs> Hit right there. Yeah, maybe yeah. kind of telling that none of us used quotes from the other movie. Yes, maybe. Uh, well, hold on, let me do that. Oh no, I'm getting shot at. Oh, there you go. Good job. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I'm a regular John Goodman. Yeah, my turn. I like art. That's a great Bob Balaban. I'm so stunned. Thanks, That's such a hard impression yeah. to do, dude. You know, I did it for him, and he got a restraining order on me. I don't, I don't, I don't understand what happened. I mean, that started when you were just like, hey, man, I love parents a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but welcome, everybody, to the Double-Edged Devil Bill, where uh, every week we talk about a good and a bad feature uh, that we picked at the end of our last episode related to a topic that we're doing. And uh, we're doing an interesting little subgenre thing here, Adam, because uh, in honor of the Suicide Squad that's coming out the week we're releasing this, we decided to do Men on a Mission films as our topic, which subgenre that's not talked about as much. Uh, basically, if you're unaware... It is a subgenre usually of like war films or prison escape films in which a group of heroes, usually like soldiers or prisoners, um, must band together on an adventure, usually across enemy territory, to complete a mission crucial to victory. So think your Dirty Dozens, your The Great Escapes, your Apocalypse Nows, those kind of things where it's basically kind of like it's a an epic fantasy journey, only in this case it is much more uh, like war-driven and there's a lot more like big guns and explosions, though there are other movies like the Suicide Squad, other things that kind of take that premise and do a bit of different stuff with it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you already named some of the the better ones, but I mean, for I think the perfect sort of movie to sum it up uh, would be like a Saving Private Ryan. Yes. In fact, when we came up with this topic, I was a little perplexed by it in a way because it's not a subgenre that I often consider a subgenre, but it definitely does exist. True, and plus when you're about 170 episodes in. You gotta reach for the stuff. You gotta spice up uh, the stuff. Our next episode is mac and cheese and movies. And uh, it's, uh, it's a tough one. Look, the, the, art, the cinema de mac and cheese. is uh, There's a lot of variety to it. But no, I think Man on a Mission is interesting. And nothing else because, like, we, we admittingly, we picked one that sort of resembles more traditional Man on a Mission movie. Mm. And another one that kind of skirts the line a bit. But it, at the same time, like, it isn't too far off from, like, say, one of my favorite movies ever is The Wizard of Oz. And taken out of, like, the fantasy context, it's a Men on a Mission movie. It's a bunch of, like, misfits coming together, like, going across, in this case, Oz, and finding someone. It's just, in most cases, Men on a Mission movies end up being like, oh, we 
have a lot more guns and ammunition, a lot of people die. Which I'm heard the Suicide Squad is going to go very deep into, which I'm very excited about. Me too. Hey, absolutely, 100%. Um, it seems like it's something that would appeal to a James Gunn, because it has the best mix of sort of, like, his love of, like, sort of like a band of misfits coming together, and then his earlier roots with, like, trauma, with, like, a lot of gore and stuff like that. It feels like he could really balance out well. I mean, even, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, for how, like, sort of traditional that movie is, also feels like a man on a mission movie. Even when I saw that movie originally, I thought, oh, it's like The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's sort of James Gunn's forte, man. He likes the, he likes doing the movies where you put uh, people in extraordinary circumstances and, you know, watching what happens. And that's basically what the uh, men on a mission subgenre is. Yes, and in the case of us, uh, we went for uh, two movies that we picked at the end of our last episode. Adam had the bad picks, and we ended up with The Monuments Men, which is the more traditional kind of Man on a Mission movie. And then my good pick was one that definitely, I think, took a lot of influence from those Man on a Mission movies, but did a lot of interesting different stuff with it, had a lot of other influences with Streets of Fire. We'll get into that movie, but first let's start off with uh, The Monuments Men. Time to put a team together and do our best to protect buildings, bridges, and art before the Nazis destroy everything. How many men? Six. Jesus. Well, with you at seven. That's much better. So you want to go into a war zone with some architects and artists and tell our boys what they can and cannot blow up. That's right. Aren't we a little old for that? Yes. We go through basic and then we wait for orders. Basic? Help. Basic training. <laughs> oh boy. If you destroy an entire generation of people's culture, it's as if they never existed. We got company. Frank, we gotta go. That's what Hitler wants. And it's the one thing we can't allow. So we get to shoot some Nazis? So Monuments Men came out February 7th, 2014, which stars uh, the director, writer, and producer George Clooney, or at least he's a co-writer with Brant Hesloff, which was based on a true story, apparently, where the Monuments Men were a group of actual um, men and women um, that went across 13 nations in World War II uh, who volunteered to find basically like stolen art that was in enemy territory that the Nazis had stolen. Um, so it included a lot of, like, art historians and museum curators, architects, educators. Uh, so, real story, potentially interesting, and the the cast on this is, the, when it was coming out, that was the main appeal, which is like, oh, George Cooney, Matt Damon, Bill Murray, John Goodman, uh, Bob Balaban, Kate Blanchett, uh, Jean Dujardin, off of his Oscar win. Yep. Right? Uh, so it was like, oh, man, this is going to be great. And then I heard everyone was like, eh. So I didn't see it until now for the show. And Adam, I believe that's the case for you. And is that generally your consensus with it? I mean, I'm even a little bit more like, ugh. Over, ah. it, it is a fucking bore fest. This movie is so boring. And it really shouldn't be. It should be super fucking fun and exciting. And especially with that cast. And even the premise, it's a great idea, man. These guys who are sort of like, you know, architects and, and art historians and, you know, sculptors and everything. They're the only people that the army at the time is willing to send over there to do this, to, to save sort of the culture of all these different countries and religions and everything that's, you know, ended up in Nazi hands. And I just didn't give a fuck, man. I did not give a single fuck the whole movie. And the fact of the matter is, 
a lot of these big name actors uh, don't fucking care either. Nothing works in this movie, I'd argue. I don't think there's one thing in this that I really think is like captivating. Other than Bill Murray crying in a shower. Yeah, um, I generally agree that it's a pretty much a bore fest. But at the same time, I think my expectations were a bit tempered on it just because um, in preparation for this episode, I decided to watch a lot of the other George Clooney directed movies. The directorial career of George Clooney, which is fascinating in terms of just how much wasted potential it is. Because like the first two movies, he does Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Which I still quite like. I still think that's a pretty fun, interesting debut. Yeah, and then Good Night and Good Luck, which I think is a great movie. Yeah, that movie's amazing. Yeah. Like, those two movies, I think, work because he has the specific visual idea for what he's going for with, like, the stylistic choices. And there's, like, a stronger hand, at least, with, like, like Charlie Kaufman with Conventions of a Dangerous Mind doing the script. Or Good Night and Good Luck has the influence of, like, Edward R. Murnau's actual, like, dialogue that he put out to, you know, on early TV and shit like that. There's at least more of a steady hand that Clooney can like add his own flourishes to, as opposed to when you get to like Leatherheads and the Ides of March, this movie, uh, even the, the recent midnight sky one or the, like the movie that makes me feel like, well, this isn't as big a disaster is Suburbicon, which is like one of the worst fucking major studio movies I've ever seen. And is like one of the most baffling bad decisions a bunch of very talented people have ever done it is an abysmal offensive movie um the thing is all those movies show that Clooney at least is like oh you're a fan of films like Leatherheads feels like it's trying to be a 30s screwball comedy Ides of March is like oh we're doing a 70s political thriller this movie's very much like a World War II movie Suburbicon has like 50s Americana stuff even Midnight Sky is like oh we're doing our version of like a modern uh, like sort of apocalyptic sci-fi movie you can tell Clooney likes all those things but he just does not have enough directorial vision to like make it distinctive or interesting it usually looks good he gets like good cinematographers and shit like that but it never feels yeah. like there's any kind of actual voice that makes you feel like oh you're putting something distinctive as much as like you're you're cosplaying essentially <laughs> yeah I think that's 100% accurate I think it just shows what Hollywood tended to do a lot back in the day they not so much maybe anymore but when there was a, a name actor, a draw, who was considered a box office sort of darling or even a good looking actor or whatever, somebody really cared about the craft and they sort of gave him the keys of the kingdom. Like, yeah, you direct these movies, you direct these movies. Yeah, you can direct a movie. And, you know, other than the first two mentioned, which are still both flawed, still good movies, this doesn't work all the time. And, and I think Clooney's a perfect example to where it's like, are they competently made? Sure. But is it a, a movie that needed to be made? No. Not at all. Or more importantly, a movie that he needed to make specifically. Like, I didn't yeah. see any version of any of those movies done by a different director with him being, like, an actor-producer, maybe, and it would be pretty stellar. Like, as opposed to, like, him, it's so weird, we're like, we haven't talked that much about Clooney, and Clooney feels like he was one of the last examples, at least from what I could remember, of, like, a lead actor who could get, like, sort of butts and seats. Yeah. He felt like one of the last I... of that kind of breed, in a way that, like, is great for, like, an Oceans movie, or for, like, a, even from Dust Till Dawn, that does not immediately translate to, like, oh, you're a great director. No. Not everybody can be, like, Robert Redford, oh, dude. I, yeah, I completely agree. I, I think George Clooney, I, I think you kind of hit it on the head. I think George Clooney is the probably the last example of a major American movie star. Not necessarily, like, the greatest actor, but a movie star where people are like, oh, George Clooney, what's he in next? We care about who he's married to. We can't, all that shit. And, uh, yeah, I think he's probably the last major, major example of it. 
I mean, there's a few others lingering, like a Will Smith, um, or yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm saying, but they were already around. I, you right. know, the thing is, I think Clooney was sort of the last big one to come out the gate. Really, I mean, even though he's been around for a long time, but once he hit it big, uh, there was no looking back. Yeah, the, like the early 2000s was kind of like the last point where you got some of those like bigger actors. And now I think Clooney is one of those guys where he, because he has that cachet, he can be like, oh, I can like do whatever the fuck I want. And it, it just feels at the same time, like there's, it's more about, oh, hey, let me get us in this attire, this like authentic looking costumes with like really like well detailed sets. And let me get such a massive cast around and we'll have fun doing this kind of like my oceans days, but he doesn't have like the artistic flourish of a Steven Soderbergh to make it feel at all distinctive because it's so much of this movie is like we mentioned the the structure of it is extremely repetitive for like anyone who's seen one world war ii movie it is like Mm -hmm. pretty much like that and they have like the brief bit of a joke where it's like oh no these guys aren't soldiers they're nerds (laughs) (laughs) bob Balaban's outfit is too big for his little body whoa cute yeah it's just it's so fucking dumb and it, I mean, just what a huge misstep. I mean, and it's unfortunate. Like I said, with this cast and that story, I mean, this movie could have been a fucking dynamite. Like, just extravagance. It's just super good, emotional, entertaining, action-packed, whatever you want to call it. And it just kind of fails on every one of those levels. Yeah, especially because it's like I mentioned, the structure is so repetitive. Where how much of, like, after they get on their mission, so many scenes are just, like, two of the guys in the middle of some vague war scenario and they're kind of bouncing off very milk toast joke material off each other. Like, it's either Jean Dujardin and John Goodman just like, hey, we're getting shot at. I never shot anybody before. Oh, well, it's pretty easy. Have you done it? No. Right. Or it's Bob Balaban and Bill Murray sort of trying to take cheap shots at each other. Right. Just like, you're sure. Well, I'm surprised you can read. <laughs> hey. And, and, you know, and the thing is, it's so tonally all over the place, too, in a way, where it's like, you got these little offsets with like Bob Alman and Bill Murray, like you said, and Desjardins and, and John Goodman. And then you got the whole like shoehorned, will they, won't they, Matt Damon, Kate Blanchett thing. There was a certain point, like the tie thing happens. And I'm like, wait, yeah. were, were they fucking? Was that the implication? Of That's what I thought that. Yeah. Well, no, he didn't. Obviously, he didn't turn to do a joke. Oh, make sure you give what's uh, whatever her character name. Make sure you give her a kiss. Oh, she'd really like that. Like what? It, it this is so fucking dumb. Even like in the setup for that, like early on with the whole mission, where like Matt Damon and George Clooney meet up at the bar. It's just like, oh, all right, yeah, I love the Ocean's movies. These two, they're back and forth. It's gonna be simmering, and they're just like, hey, what's up, man? Oh, you know, it's been a while. Hey, yeah, yeah I like to drink. Yeah, you do. Cool. Yeah, you want to go uh, into the war? It's like us in the war. Yeah, I go through basic, basic us in the war. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's weird where you think at least like some of the, because I heard like from some people like John Goodman said, oh, I had the most fun making that movie. It's like, it feels like you would have that kind of fun with that many oh, like yeah. great talented people being together. That sounds cool, but none of that translates to the screen where like all these like great charismatic actors next to each other like oh my god it's gonna be so great and so dull like even like the Kate Blanchett Matt Damon thing where she just introduces just like this French lady she's like I do not like you very much oh well I'm Matt Damon let me lead you on your mission and then they go to her apartment and she's just like you DTF bro <laughs> it's like wow well, yeah you could stay it's Paris hey hey what is, what is yeah this? it's uh I mean right and I think you just said it really well too it's like you got this cast of just 
some of the most charismatic, you know, actors working today, and they have zero chemistry with each other. Like, zero. There was not one moment in this, like, even when Desjardins takes the shot, and John Goodman's all upset about it or whatever, I never felt the weight of any of that. Like, none of it. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, wait, they're friends? Like, when? Like, how about we show that more then? You know what I'm saying? Like, show more of these guys getting to know each other and really becoming friends and stuff, instead of just a couple little scenes of shitty dialogue, and, and then, then that's it. Because the dialogue in this movie sucks. It, the most thrilling scene in this movie, and, and I will be honest because I did think it was really good, when uh, Balaban and Bill Murray were at the SS guy who was hiding out where they are at his house and they were inspecting the art. Mm-hmm. I liked that scene. Bill Murray sat there pulling his pistol out was actually kind of intimidated the way he's eye-fucking that guy. But it was like too little, too way too late. Yeah, and it's you feel every length of two hours as well. <laughs> I paused it and took an hour-long nap. Yeah, I can't. I'm not going to make it through this movie. So I had to pause it, go to sleep, wake up, and refinish it. I think what really summarizes this movie so beautifully, and honestly, what summarizes like fucking Clooney's directorial career in general, is early on when they're out in the field and they're about to go out. There's a scene where like George Clooney and Matt Damon are off in one end, and they have a radio, and then John Goodman and everybody else is off with a different radio, and then George Clooney is just like, "Is everybody there? Okay, I want to say something." And then goes on this huge speech about, like, you know what, we're the only ones that are entrusted here to be able to do something this great, which is to preserve this art. They don't give any kind of a shit about preserving this art, but we know that, like, to preserve someone's, like, cultural legacy is crucial and important and all this other stuff. And he goes off on this huge rant, and it's, like, the most basic-ass sort of, like, let's inspire the troops kind of speech, the way that it's shot, the way that it, all that dialogue yep. goes off. It's just like, oh, you're talking about preserving beautiful, gorgeous art. And you're doing it in the least artful way possible. <laughs> the most dull, drab, cliche way possible. <laughs> it's just like the ultimate, like, you have no idea what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> I agree. And then the thing is, you, tell, you know, we have to protect this. It's our, that's what we're fighting for, our culture, and blah, blah, blah. And then the very last line is, but don't, don't let yourself die over a piece of art. It's not worth it. <laughs> right. Like, wait, what? Then what the fuck are they even there for? I want to go there then. If you're telling them, yeah, we got to save us art, but clearly, like, don't get into any, like, fights or anything over it. Like, that's not worth it. You're in World War II, Nazi Germany. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah, it's also very well illustrated by the whole Hugh Bonneville death sequence, which is also, like, so labored and so poor, but just like, oh, the, I, I loved this one particular statue of... Uh, Mary Magdalene. I wanted to save it and preserve it. And he gets shot up in the fucking church and you're supposed to be really swept up in the emotion of it, but it's like, who cares? <laughs> I don't know this guy very well. It's Hugh Bonneville. I like Hugh Bonneville, but what, what's his character? <laughs> I like Hugh Bonneville a lot. Yep. And then hell of a thing about Roger. Yep, hell of a thing. Sweet. All the way down to the very ending, the saccharine ending of this movie, oh, where it's just like, sake. will anyone care about this art and how it's preserved? And it cuts to several decades later, a bunch of kids are at a fucking museum, and one of the chaperones is an older version of George Clooney's character played by Nick Clooney, his father, who's just looking up at this art, just like, yep, it's the statues you buy the one to preserve. Which feels so weirdly contradictory as well, because it's like, he's saying, oh, will anyone care about this art? And it's clear, like, at a school trip where none of those kids give a shit, including his grandson. It's yep. just like, can we go? Yeah. That's the guy who was actually there on the mission is the only one that cares. Yep. So, <laughs> so what was this fuck? for? <laughs> you're right and by the way put a mustache on that old man 
That's true. It's it's, it's just <laughs> screaming like there's a sign that should be just like insert mustache here. Yeah, dude. They should have Henry Cavill it, but reverse. You know, the thing is, I remember when this movie was coming out, and I remember the trailers and everything, and I'm like, oh, this gotta be, this is gonna be fucking good, you know? And obviously, I didn't see it when it came out, but because the reviews instantly were like, oh, this is not good, this is really boring, and don't waste your time. Obviously, with our topic, Men on a Mission, this is probably the first one that popped in my head for a choice, and I think it really fits perfectly i don't care about any of these men i don't care about the story i don't care about any of it because it's it's so like you said already milk toast and blandly done it's like i none of the sort of internal relationships felt like they had any weight to it like i didn't feel any camaraderie between any of them like it's just it's two hours of watching people who really don't know what type of movie they want to make I, another scene that epitomizes that is the whole mind scene oh, yeah. and how labored that once again is and how it also shows like there's no real stakes because it's like oh we're taking this sequence where it's like this guy's on like Matt Damon steps on a mine so it's like oh it could go off or whatever and there's so much of the back and forth about just like oh why would you step on that mine why would you like everyone says that one fucking line to him uh-huh. immediately when they first find out about the situation and it's treated like so much like a laugh and it's this weird thing where like the movie treats their lives mostly it's just kind of like expendable except when they actually die the few that do it's this big beautiful moment but it's not even as ceremonial as like when they discover the art and all of like the beauty and majesty of like look here's this beautiful oh, painting or this statue or this other stuff it is this weird thing where like that line that you talked about earlier where George Clooney's like but don't kill yourself for a piece of art I don't think like the movie's contradicting that statement it's constantly the whole time it shows how poor Clooney is as a director where it contradicts so much about like oh these men are important the monuments men but maybe the monuments are important maybe it's the men maybe the women the one woman no not really that one woman maybe the guys maybe the art it just is constantly like who do you care about <laughs> who should I care about uh, I mean a hundred percent the whole thing is you know don't Laid on your lives for a piece of art. Don't, don't, don't. The very couple last lines of the movie. Do you think it was worth it that they died for this piece of art? Yes, I think he would say it was worth it. Yes. Wait a minute. The whole, the whole crux of your whole fucking, you know, freedom speech was don't die for the art. Yet. They died for the art. Do you think they'd be? Yeah, for sure. Well, that was the PS to the big thing about that. We have to preserve art. Oh, BT dubs. Don't die, bro. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> BT dubs. Don't, don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't. Check out of there if you got to. But save that shit. But don't, don't. Don't die, but save it. But get out of there if you have to. But if you can't save it, save it. It's really stupid. Before we go into final thoughts, I want to ask, like, based on sure. all the stuff we've been talking about, Kuni as a director, do you think he has another good movie possibly in him? Or do you think he should just, like, completely stop directing? What do you think he, if he is to actually direct another movie... What do you think he should do? I don't think he should. I got to be 100% honest. I don't think he should. I think he came pretty good out of the gate with his first two and then sort of just flatlined from there. I think he should stop. I think Clooney could still have a really good career as an actor, uh, but directing, I, I, I think he needs to stop. Yeah. 100%. It's pretty telling that like in the Sony leaked emails, there was a lot of back and forth between him and Amy Pascal saying he was worried that he did a bad job because of all the reviews and apologized to her it shows that he's capable of being humble but at the same time right after this he does suburbicon which 
if you don't know what Suburbicon is, it's this weird thing where he took a script from the Coen brothers that they had written ages ago that was about, like, oh, a couple is committing insurance fraud that involves, like, a burglar being forced and, like, their kid is finding out about it. Interesting premise, but he combined that with a non-fiction script that was about this real-life black family that moved in a suburban white neighborhood. And that's, like the background stuff that's happening in the neighbor's house while the Coen brothers thing is going on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a terrible, film. it's one of the worst fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> Great cast. Yes. Terrible film. Terrible. Absolutely. <laughs> Just a garbage fire movie. <laughs> um, I, I, so I think that's the thing is if he ever is going to direct again, I think he just needs a stronger producer than like, or writer partner than like Grant Heslov, his buddy who he started the fucking tequila company with, which is mostly what he's been doing lately, <laughs> honestly, but no, nah, he sold, he sold them shits. Well, that's true. He sold years. that shit. And now, yeah, he's just kind of like meandering around. Like he does like a midnight sky, which for the record, I would say is probably his best film in a while. And it's still a very yeah. messy, bad movie. <laughs> At the same time, yeah. I think he just needs, like, somebody, if he's going to do it again, to, like, actually restrain him a bit. Just, like, don't just, like, put the camera down and act with your buddies. You actually need to be a director if you're going to fucking direct. do this. That's 100% accurate. Yep, just be the director, too. Don't necessarily be the star. Be the director. Well, to be fair, that was the case. Suburbicon is the one movie he directed he's not in, and that didn't help him. <laughs> That did help you there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just think he just really needs to like sit down with Soderbergh again. <laughs> yeah, his best buddy's the star though, Matt Damon. Yes, that's true. Who once again just very much sleepwalking despite being yeah. in some kind of weird flirtation with Kate Blanchett, which is like Matt Damon, Kate Blanchett. That sounds hot, and it's there's nothing there. <laughs> there's nothing, nothing there. <laughs> and then to keep it topical, Matt Damon. Come on, bro. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we're recording this the day after he <laughs> the, did the whole thing yeah. about the his talking about his kid about not using the F slur, quote unquote. Uh, that's not a proud dad moment, dude. Don't. No, get your shit together. That, bro. I get what he's trying to do, but come on, man. But it's it's just it's like, hey, look, aren't I proud? Aren't I progressive? Just like, dude. My nine year old had to tell me to not say the F slur in a written letter. Wow. <laughs> Good for you, ain't, you. Fuck. Ain't I woke, bro? <laughs> You fuck. Yep. <laughs> you know that he was Asshole. in a text chain with like Ben Affleck and Cole Hauser, just like, dude, that sounds like a great story, bro. You're you're so progressive. Yeah. <laughs> oh fuck yeah, get that out there. Oh man. <laughs> Adam, we have to move on from Monuments Men. Yeah, so yeah, any yeah, final no, thoughts you do. possibly have left about Monuments <laughs> It's bland, it's boring, and it has no reason to be. This movie should have been a fucking knock out of the park. Uh, it had all the proper elements except for the directing. And, and obviously this the screenplay could have used a tune-up as well. Uh, should have been a runaway hit, and instead it sort of just fucking dies before it hits first base. It meanders off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with all that, and I think the the only other thing I can say is there was a point when I was watching this where I really realized how damning the movie was, in which I said to myself... You know, instead of watching this two-hour movie with all these great stars about this particular subject, I'd rather watch a 60-minute documentary on History Channel about this that's super dry. Because that would have been a better use of my fucking time. <laughs> I'd rather watch a documentary on the making of this movie than watch the actual fucking movie. That would make me angrier because it's going to be a lot of just like, hey, all these serious people having fun. It's like, I didn't have fun. 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Stop fucking smiling, Jean Dujardin. You ain't gonna be smiling when nobody gives you a fucking career after this. At all, by the way. It's because I like that guy. By the way, I think he deserves like better than too. like. It's a weird thing where once again getting a best actor award really screwed up his career. Killed it. Killed it. Really did. I would definitely recommend anybody go watch the OSS 117 movies, the French spy parody movies. He did. Those are very fun. And he's doing a third one now. I'm very curious about that. Oh. Um, but enough about all that, Adam. We got to move on to another movie. But first, here's a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Hi, everyone. It's Nathan, host of the 42 cast. Our second season is just underway, and it's never been a better time to check in on what we're doing. Whether it's talking about the latest movies from the MCU, watching the Arrowverse shows, talking about classics such as Star Trek and Doctor Who, playing 8-bit video games, or sharing celebrity interviews, the 42 cast has something for everyone. So give it a listen, and discover why it's the ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. The 42 cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. So now let's get into our good feature, Streets of Fire. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful. Since they see the show, it's really good. The brutal. I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. From the creators of 48 Hours, Universal Pictures presents Michael Paré, Diane Lane, Rick Moranis, and Amy Madigan in a Walter Hill film, Streets of Fire. So Streets of Fire came out uh, June 1st, 1984 from director and co-writer Walter Hill, who he wrote this along with Larry Gross. And uh, you might not be familiar with this movie because it wasn't a huge success when it came out originally, but uh, basically... It is the story of, um, in this alternate sort of past, present, future of this time, from another time, another place, as it says in the opening titles, of Richmond, uh, which is like an urban area where there's not a lot of stuff going on, except for, at this particular time when we're coming in, there's a big concert going on with uh, the big sort of uh, person who left the town, Ellen Aim, who became a rock star. It's on a big concert. Everybody's there. Everybody's having fun. When she is kidnapped by Raven, who is the leader of this gang of motorcyclists played by Willem Dafoe, who uh, they abduct her and take her off. While she is taken off, one of the former tough guys, Tom Cody, comes back from the war, played by Michael Pere, and uh, he is tasked by his sister, Breva, played by Deborah Van Valkenburg, to go out on a mission to hopefully save Ellen, who he used to have a fling with. And he, along the way, is tasked by Billy Fish, who is her manager-slash-boyfriend, now played by Rick Moranis, and gets a sidekick in the form of McCoy, who's this tough lady, uh, played by Amy Madigan. And basically, it's this weird, kind of like, man-on-a-mission story of trying to get back Ellen Aim. But it's also a rock musical. It is, um, like a tough guy crime kind of thriller it is so many things at once it's hard to really describe 
which is what makes Streets of Fire an extremely unique movie that uh, I had as my good pick, and I fucking love this movie. Adam, do you? I fucking love this movie, too. Uh, this movie is so fucking crazy. Now, the thing is, you see, obviously, like, the Warriors from Walter Hill previously. Mm-hmm. It, it definitely it permeates through this film as well. But it's so funny, after we watching it this time, I'm watching it, and I know this sounds crazy, but I'm thinking, oh, the Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> right. Like, honestly, I'm like, oh, this looks like fucking Koopa Town. Uh, it's with all the fucking characters and everything. But yeah, this movie is so fucking cool, dude. And I wish it would have been a success, because I know it was a like a going to be a planned trilogy yes. following the Tom Cody character, which Michael Paré, god damn is he handsome in this movie jesus christ and i've always kind of liked marco Paré. he's a he's a total c-list actor mm-hmm. uh he's not necessarily great but i'm always happy every time i see him uh you know like this bad moon uh you know things like that i i've always kind of liked him and oh you also forgot to mention that the main sort of singer love interest is a very young diane lane yes turned 18 right before filming started Oh, it, it's obvious. But yeah, this movie is just fucking fun from beginning to end. This is one of the most fun movies. Uh, every time I watch it, I, I can't do nothing but smile. The thing is, this movie, I agree, it's like so crazy. But at the same time, it does like to take its time, which is what I love. Is it like really likes to have you explore this world while at the same time doing really crazy stuff like I only discovered this movie a couple years ago, but I was stunned immediately by this may be one of my favorite openings in a fucking movie. The the opening in which, like, Ellen May has her big concert, um, while at the same time, like, the biker gang is coming in, and it's set to Nowhere Fast, one of many great songs in this movie that I feel sort of like they're referring back to the 50s, but also are very much of that 80s period at the same time. And this one in particular, this one in the ending song by Jim Steinman, uh, who... You might know it's the guy who wrote a bunch of Meatloaf songs. Um, this movie has the effect of a like one of those Jim Steinman songs where it doesn't make a huge amount of sense if you think about it for a second, but it is so emotionally true the whole time, right from the start, where a big concert's going on while at the same time a group of bikers are coming in and have a massive brawl <laughs> in the middle of this concert, and especially when they go into the street and just chaos is happening. The, the chaos of this opening is just like so fucking stellar and sets you up for the wild ride this movie takes you on. Yeah, dude, and Willem Dafoe's hair and leather overalls? Like, what is happening his, with this guy? His leather overalls, like, go up to his nipples. Where do I get these things? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's one thing. Like, this is one of his first major roles, right? Yeah, he'd been only in, like, a couple movies. Like, he was an extra in The Hunger, and he was the lead in The Lawless, yeah. the first uh, movie by Catherine Bigelow right. before this, so very early. Right. And he's genuinely, well, he kind of always is, but he's genuinely, like, intimidating as the heavy in this. Like, you get it, why people would be scared of him. Especially like, the bit when he's, he's coming out with, like, just his overalls on, looking at Tom Cody and the fires yeah, in the background, the just like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming yeah, for yeah, her, yeah. and I'm coming for you. That's one th- part about it I love, too. Like, Tom Cody is so ballsy. He was like, what's your name? Tom Cody. <laughs> like, he just tells him flat out. You're like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll, yes. I'll say this much. I think Michael Pere is, to me, I, I like him in this movie fine, but he is sort of, like, the weakest link, to be fair, in this astonishing cast. 
that's around him. He looks the part beautifully of just like Tom Clear. This like he's so tall and he has like the scruffy hair, facial hair, and he has that no give a fuck attitude. But I think he mostly works when he's not saying dialogue because I agree the accent just feels so weird. Where it's just like once again off of Willem Dafoe just being so intimidating and snidely and just having this clear tone of voice. It's like, sup, I'm Tom Cody. How are you? <laughs> it's a bit weird, but he's helped out so much by such a phenomenal fucking cast around, not just Defoe, but like, I would say my favorite, the person who seals the fucking show for me is Amy Madigan. as McCoy. Oh, she's great. She's fucking yeah, she's awesome. Great. Especially considering like that character was originally written to be, uh, like this Hispanic, like heavier set dude who was going to be like the sidekick. And she was just like auditioned for the sister role. And she's like, no, fuck that. I want like the, the baddest tough guy. I want the Mendez role. That's what I want. And Walter Hill was like, that's a cool idea, sure. And he just changed a couple things, but just kept that same badass attitude, and she is fucking stellar. Like, I want that Tom Cody trilogy more so I could see him with Amy Vatican. Because they would make such a badass, like, fucking yeah, duo. Now, you know, to get into it, do you, I think it's heavily implied that she's uh, LGBT. Don't you think? I don't know if that would have been as conscious on Walter Hill or Amy Madigan at the time. But I could see that interpretation. Yeah, I think it's right there, man. But even, but even the fact that you know he tries to sleep with, she's like, "Ah, oh, you're not my type." And then the way, like, she acts with the other guy in the bar, and she's staring at the girl who's dancing for a moment. Like, I, I, I really think it's right there. It's never mentioned, which is fine. It doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's there, and I, I do think it's kind of a really sort of early representation of that that maybe doesn't get any credit like there's a lot of evidence to it but i wouldn't necessarily dissuade it being like a, a take and i think it works so suddenly particularly when she's like bouncing off with like rick moranis who's a perfect asshole in this in his fucking oh, stupid yeah. suit looking like a fucking ventriloquist dummy but having so much confidence like when he's going back and forth just like i don't know what's worse the w- way your hair looks or the way you're dressed just like oh stellar Amy Madigan show him who's boss and he's just like hey toots I know what's going on <laughs> just, it's Which, so fucking good from what I understand him and Michael Paré fucking hated each other yeah you can tell it, it feels authentic the, the hatred well because Michael Paré was a, used to work with comedians who were just busted his balls like Rick Rand just busted his balls the whole time Michael Paré's like I'm gonna knock this guy out <laughs> fuck you <yeah. laughs> fake ass Costas Mandalore Michael Paré <laughs> Hey, don't don't insult Michael Parry by comparing him to Costas Mandalore. I think it's reversed the other way around with Costas Mandalore. Maybe, maybe. Um, but but no, I think like there's like so many of these small people make so much of their like fucking small appearance. Like even like uh, Deborah Van Varenberg as the Reva character. I so believe that she's like this lady that runs a diner in this middle of the shithole town. It's just like, come on, you gotta do fucking something, bro. You gotta, like, fucking go out there and do something for your little shit. Or Bill Paxton as the bartender, perfectly being, like, the, the Bill Paxton, like, wiry dude of his early career. Or even when they meet up with the band Les Sorrells, uh, which is, yeah. like, who are so charismatic. I love that. And you might recognize them, like, Robert Townsend's one of them, and McCarthy Williamson, uh, Bubba himself, um, who are, like, so charismatic and fun the moment they enter in. They're just, especially with, like, when Michael Perez stops the fucking bus. It's just like, hey, man, I gotta get going. Oh, you know what? Come on the bus. Please don't shoot me. <laughs> Come on. In. Every single member of that group I, I know from other movies. Right. Or even, like, some of the other people, like, Ed Begley Jr. shows up as a fucking homeless person. <laughs> I know. 
Oh, man, you don't want to go over to that area. That's a bad part of town. Or E.G. Daly, the voice of Tommy Pickle, shows up as Baby Doll, a random character. <laughs> like, there's... Or even Lee Ving from Fear as, like, the main toady of, like, the fucking motorcycle mm-hmm. game. Like, everybody makes such a great impression the moment they enter the screen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, it, I mean, it's popu- this movie's populated by uh, recognizable faces, but, yeah, no, none of the characters feel wasted either. Mm-hmm. Like they're all, it's just, it's such a weird universe that he built with this movie. Like, I, I get why this movie failed. Like, I really do. Um, I love it, and, but I think it it fits perfect as sort of the cult movie it's become. I I get why when this movie came out, people were like, "What the fuck is this?" Because it's kind of bizarre. It, it takes place in a weird future, New York ish. With, you know, doo-wop music and also punk music. And it's just kind of nuts, dude. It's only the movie that could only really come from, like, Walter Hill having just done 48 Hours, which was such a big, massive yes. hit. And just like, dude, do whatever the fuck you want with Universal. It's like, okay, can I use your back lot and create this weird, not quite any city? And also, we want to shoot mostly at night. So they have to shoot during the day. So we're going to tarp over the fucking sky so it looks black. Most of the time. Oh, and by the way, it is very backlot. Like, this whole movie looks like it's the backlot. Right, for sure. but in a way that looks like you're just in a different... Like, once again, at the beginning of the movie, it's a rock and roll fable from another place, another time. It looks like it is so many different cities, but not any specific city. In a way that... It kind of reminds me of, like, other movies that would come later. Not just the Super Mario Brothers movie, but also, like, 1989 Batman. Yes. Very accurate. With, with, the, with the way it looks. Yes, where it's just like... It, it's one of those movies where, like, I... People complain so much about, like, oh, you're shooting on a back lot. That only really bothers me if you're trying to tell, like, oh, this is a realistic human story. And it's like, this is clearly, like, visit Universal Studios and <laughs> the Universal Studios tram tour. I didn't mean it as a detriment. I think it fits the movie yes. very, very well. But it is clearly a back lot. That's, yeah. Right. But, yeah, I think it, it works because it it sort of looks like a, a manu- not necessarily manufactured, but an, just this place doesn't exist anywhere. And yet, it totally makes sense. Right, where it's just like, is this New York? Is it Chicago? Is it this place? It's like, it's a mash of all of these different places with the architecture and everything. And I think that's so stellar for, like, really creating this otherworldly thing, where even for the men on a mission angle of it, where they have certain territories they can go to, like, oh, you can go to the the Bowery or this particular place. Like, there's so many different sections off. It feels like one of those men on a mission movies where you're going, like, you you have to go into this specific enemy territory and then sneak in this way and all this other stuff. Like, the whole scene where they're raiding the bar where Ellen Aim has been abducted has, like, so many, like, weird things. Like, it's a siege movie, but also there's like a big rock and roll number that's going on in the bar. And there's also like an eighties lady who's like the bartender. It just has so many different disparate elements that somehow just mesh perfectly together. It's such a movie of its time. And yet of any time, if that makes sense, like this movie clearly was made in the eighties, like this going to get made any other time. Uh, And yet it's still so perfect today because of the weirdness of it. And the fact that it doesn't belong directly to any one city or any even like clothing style or music style. It's just this weird fantasy mishmash of cool ideas. Like I, I read a thing where Walter Hill said, I made streets of fire cause I wanted to make a movie that had all the cool shit that I loved as a kid, motorcycle gangs, fist fights, the rogue hero kisses in the rain, rock music, all this cool shit and that's the movie we got and it's kind of exactly that 
this is all the shit you would want in a movie is in this movie. Yeah, and he also kind of says like he wanted to basically create a film version of a graphic novel, and it feels so much like that. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. This feels like it could just be storyboarded as a graphic novel and still work beautifully. Where even like some of the stuff like on paper, the whole relationship with like Diane Lane and Michael Pere doesn't make a lot of sense. But the moment you see her like leave Rick Moranis and go off to him in the rain and the kiss in the rain, you're like, this is the truest love there has ever been. <laughs> And it really isn't. But in the moment, you're just like so swept up in it. What a cool fucking movie this is. That's the thing. It's just a cool movie. You know, the thing is, a lot of people I've talked to since we chose this movie and I said I was doing it, like from my wife to my brother to a couple buddies of mine, are like, wait, what is that movie? Who's in it? And I describe it like, oh, I've seen that. A lot of people have seen this movie. I think it just kind of got lost to time. But at the same time, you also see how, despite it being very much a flop when it came out, $14 million budget made $8 million at the box office, you see at the same time the influence, like particularly, apparently when this traveled overseas was very popular, particularly in Japan, this feels like it influenced so many fucking anime. Like, Willem Dafoe was an anime villain (laughs) in this fucking movie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. But it also has, it kind of has that same feeling where, like, it comes from Ultra Hill who grew up with all this stuff, but at the same time, it feels like it is a mishmash from, like, somebody who is from a foreign country that discovered all this stuff and wants to express how much like, they love it in the same way that, like, a lot of anime does, at least from what I've seen. Like, just sort of this weird, like, it's the thing we talk about where it's like, oh, it's an artistic version of, like, what the American sort of, like, pop culture zeitgeist is. But this is coming from somebody who lived it. And, is, and it also feels so weird where, even despite it being from, like, the same day who made The Warriors, it is still even more gonzo than The Warriors is. The Warriors is like, oh, it takes place in New York, but there's weird characters in the middle of it. As opposed to this is, right. like we said, in a far off distant land that's not quite everywhere, but also is everywhere. That's like an urban decay. I mean, 100%. Isn't that crazy that a movie that has like the baseball furies and the greasers and all these different weird gangs that just populate this is is a more like relatable, like, oh, yeah, I get it, than this movie. It's a straight up fantasy movie, like 100%. Is there some, is Michael Paré the weakest link? Yes, of course he is. Uh, but it's only because the stacked cast is around him. <laughs> he can't compete. Dude, stacked. How's Michael Paré going to compete against Amy Madigan or fucking Willem Dafoe? He's not going to do it. Hell, there's, like, not gonna there's one scene where he talks to some subway motorist woman, and it's like, oh, who is this? Oh, it's Lynn Thigpen from fucking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, 100%. Or even the the fucking main sheriff that comes in, uh, or not the sheriff, but the guy who's got the roadblock is uh, Richard Lawson. Yeah, Richard Lawson. I mean, what the fuck, dude? It's like this, this the movie's populated by big name and character actors we all know. I get why Marco Pare was being pushed at this time. Again, he's a good looking dude in good shape. He's has that fucking voice of his is outrageous though, like. Go ahead, go do what you want to do, baby. <laughs> like, he's like, no, wait, what? <laughs> but um, the thing about this movie is, like, yeah, you, you see the influences in a lot of other movies that have come since. And it, it sort of wears its influences on its sleeve from what came before it. But 
I'd argue there's no movie really like Streets of Fire. Yeah, I think what works about it is like it clearly is like a movie nostalgic for like the you know in that thirty year nostalgia cycle for like the fifties from the eighties. But at the same time, it's like okay, I'm gonna take a lot of those things, and it's more of I'm not gonna specifically like hey remember this thing from the fifties as much as take like that feeling you had from it and then really elevate it to this rock opera level. It's a fucking rock opera movie. It's, like, better than most of, like, the attempts at, like, oh, let's adapt a concept album. This feels like it's a movie that should have been adapted from, like, a concept album, but it isn't. And it's just, like, no, this, like, it's came out full cloth. And even how so many of these songs, like, we should talk more about the soundtrack, which is stellar. Like, just feel like, oh, we are, like, elevating it to the perfect height this movie needs to be at. Like, with the Nowhere Fast song, or even I, I fucking love so much the Tonight is What It Means to Be Young song at the end. Or even, mm-hmm. like, the one song that became a hit, the I Can Dream About You. Like, that, mm-hmm. it's, it's the one that feels like it could have been a hit, honestly. But, like, it, it feels like you're immediately swept up in the emotion there as well. Where as that's going on, like, the great performance of the Sorrells, in the background, you've got, like, Michael Paré and Diane Lane, like, disappearing from each other's lives. And it's just like, oh, I'm so emotionally swept up in, once again, a relationship that doesn't make any fucking sense on paper. But you're like, oh, God, Michael Paré's looking at the audience. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you need me, baby. I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> we haven't talked much about even Diane Lane, who was also so great, despite being, like, you know, 18 at this time, very young. Still has so much confidence because she'd worked in the industry for so long. Like, she's coming off of working with, like, Laurence Olivier and doing two Coppola movies right before this. And she's just, like, owning being the rock star persona. Wherever she's, like, up on stage, you're like, fuck, yeah, Aladdin, keep going with it. Oh, yeah, she's fully committed, dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, that's a good thing you brought up, too, because uh, a lot of these, a lot of movies where they have, like, the fake band and stuff, a lot of times the songs are really cheesy or stupid, and you're like, come on, really? But these songs are kind of bangers, dude, and you kind of get it. Like, yeah, that would be a hit. Like, I understand. Well, and even, like, you, uh, you mentioned, like, the whole idea of, like, oh, the songs could be, like, really stupid and cheesy. Like, this movie is one of those where it's like, yeah, our songs are stupid and cheesy, but they mean something. Like, they are so yeah, good yeah, on it. Where even, like, the ending song has some of the most ridiculous, dumb lyrics that don't make any fucking sense like any Jim Steinman song. But you are so into, like, the especially the bit where, like, the, um, like, she's going with the with the chorus, just like, if the fire gets started, and, like, the Sorrells are coming, like, up in the smoothest way possible right behind her, like, fuck, yeah, keep going. I want to be, I'm clapping along with the fucking audience that, that whole time. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, 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 this movie, like I said, man, there, there's nothing like it, dude. <sighs> I get why it's a cult movie, too, though. So I, could, I, I can understand people watching this and be like, this is fucking dumb. Like, I get it. I get why people maybe didn't uh, glom onto this movie when it came out, but... To be fair, also, it was a lot of sabotage when it came out as well, where, like, it was not heavily advertised, and it came out apparently the same weekend as, like, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So it was doomed from the start. Yeah, that's a big issue. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you open against an Indiana Jones movie, especially that area Indiana Jones, with Streets of Fire, uh, with no advertising. Yeah, you're fucked. But it does feel like at the same time, like a movie that would become so cult on video and then even overseas. Like it feels like it is so much of like a movie that's weirdly, like you mentioned, of its time, but also ahead of its time. It's so fascinating where it's it's hard to classify this movie on like genre, on influence, on like even where it fits in the career of like a Walter Hill. Because it also feels like Walter Hill never made another movie quite like this before or since. I see the influence fucking everywhere, dude. 
Like, I really do. Like, up to, like, even Robocop 2, Sin City, Johnny Mnemonic. I mean, these all of these weird sort of fantasy other, you know, New York, but they're not New York movies with these colorful characters and gangs. And, and, and like, it, it's there. It's definitely there. Like, a lot of it. Like, of course, the Warriors, too, but there's something about this movie that you can still see its influences permeated throughout film today. Yeah. We're even like, it's, it's this weird thing where like, as much as like, Oh, there's like all these like very operatic rock opera things. One of the biggest ones that we haven't talked about is the final fight that involves Michael Perry and Willem Dafoe fucking throwing sledgehammers at each other in the middle of the street. But they're like, they're sledgehammers with like sharpened ends. Yep. <laughs> like they're like fucking pickaxes, but short. It's fucking crazy, dude. And I love I love it. I love it. This cop who's been riding fucking Michael Pare's ass the whole movie is finally like, well, my idea didn't work. Kick his ass. <laughs> like, yeah. And then Bill Paxson leading the battalion of like civilians with shotguns that are coming behind. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. The whole fucking city comes out to back up Tom Cody. Oh god, or even when Willem Dafoe like like he comes up with a couple of riders and then he uses his fucking air horn. That shot of his air horn, then it like goes up and you see the Hell's Angels, basically literally the Hell's Angels they actually hired for those fucking extras coming behind like a huge army going down the street. Yep. This is one of those movies that, you know, I we've talked about other movies, like I know it's completely different, but like even Barb and Star. To where I'd be really surprised if somebody watched this and didn't get a chuckle or enjoyment out of this movie because it is that type of movie where it's just so wild and weird and crazy but fun and sexy and action-packed and good music i mean how does this not work for anybody um i mean if you're not necessarily a fan of any of those things we mentioned i i could maybe see not being as big on the movie with like the influences and stuff it feels like it's a weird thing where it's a quote-unquote cool movie but also it's very cool from like dorky walter hill's perspective i think that's the interesting thing is it's it's less that it's actually like a cool movie and more of a movie that wears the influences on its sleeve and is very much like we are a dorky movie that's able to do like oh let's have a big 50s uh sort of like yeah. doo-wop group that's playing while a lady is like dancing on top of a bar and to be fair we're dorky movie fans. A hundred percent. Yes. If you've never listened to the show and that wasn't clear yeah. by us going so wild yeah. about like they have flight timers and they're flying to the world three. Yeah. Holy shit. He got <laughs> overalls on. I can almost see his nipples. <laughs> this is a movie for dorks. Right, that's the thing. It's a movie for dorks, but it's a movie that is a hundred percent like, yeah, we're a movie for dorks. We don't give a single fuck. I think that's what makes it so ahead of its time is that it embraces a lot of like sort of like nerdy, obsessive culture stuff. But it's a movie that is so ahead of its time because it's embracing a lot. Of, like, yeah, we're doing that. What are you gonna do about it? It's fucking dope, isn't it? It's like you know what, Streets of Fire. It is pretty dope. You're right. <laughs> I'm on board. You are the dopest of dope, Streets of Fire. Yes. I don't know if we have any other final thoughts because that really sums it up. I, I, well, yeah, I just, if anybody hasn't seen this, it's on Netflix. Watch it. Right. As of when we're releasing this. Yeah. Yeah. If you like our show and shit we like and movies we like, which I'm assuming you do if you listen and you haven't seen Streets of Fire, check it out. Also, I'm, I haven't seen The Suicide Squad yet, but I'm 100% sure that James Gunn loves this movie. Like, this feels like a movie James Gunn would love the fuck oh, out of. Oh, I think sure that's... We'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I will be very surprised if there's not one Streets of Fire reference in the Suicide Squad. Oh, I'm going to imagine there's going to at least be one. Yes. Yes. Another thing, too. If you were a fan of side-scroller beat-em-up video games, like Final Fight, or 
you know, Streets of Rage, any of those. That's what this movie basically is. Yeah, apparently the, the guys who developed fight, Final Fight very much said this was an influence, which makes so much sense. Oh, 100%, dude. 100%. These tough rogue guys got to go into this crazy gangland to rescue the girl. That's what this movie is. It's a side-scroller beat-em-up, but in, you know, full 3D movie. In 1984 as opposed to, like, 1989. <laughs> Correct. But uh, that's the end of our discussion of our two movies, and we have uh, another segment to get to. But first, here is a message from the ESO crew that we fully endorse. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. Now it's time to do the double review, where every week Adam and I uh, recommend and don't recommend uh, two movies, uh, four movies total, but two that we recommend, two that we don't recommend, that are based around the general topic, in this case being men on a mission films. And so, um, Adam, why don't you go ahead and you start with uh, what are the two movies you recommend as the best possible double feature and the two movies you would say are the worst possible double feature in the Men on a Mission subgenre? Okay, so, (laughs) yeah, I guess you'll understand my uh, sort of wavelength when it comes here because three of them are basically the same movie, um, at least they're supposed to be. Uh, my two good men on a mission movies are what I consider one of the greatest Westerns ever made. Not the greatest, but it's definitely up there. I have the Magnificent Seven, which, you know, everybody who was anybody at the time is an actor is in this movie. You got Bronson, Brenner. You know, it, it's just, what a great, great movie. Uh, it's sort of the stereotypical Western, but it's still one that any Western that came after it sort of influenced. Uh, and to, to that effect, this movie is also a direct remake of, uh, which I'm sure people know, uh, Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, which is just a classic of cinema. It's just such a just fantastic, fantastic film. Um, and if anybody hasn't seen it, I, I understand that maybe the length or the language barrier, or the fact that it's black and white might be sort of a turnoff, but I'd argue you are doing yourself a disservice by not watching The Seventh Samurai. It is a true masterpiece of film. And then my bad choices, I have The Magnificent Seven remake with Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt and Ethan Hawke and big who's who cast. Uh, That just falls flat on every fucking level. It is a terrible terrible hollywood action film uh it it just all the soul heart skill is gone it is a by the numbers cash grab remake to me at least uh denzel's giving it all he can because he's denzel and that's kind of what he does but the rest of it is it's just piss poor It, it nothing about it works for me um and then a movie that obviously uh took its name sort of to lampoon it uh, the Netflix original Adam Sandler, Ridiculous Six. Uh, if you want to watch a movie that is not only horrible looking, but full of offensive ass shit and some of the worst acting uh, maybe ever in an Adam Sandler movie, The Ridiculous Six might be right up your alley. I cannot 
strongly suggest enough that you just avoid it at all costs. I know it was a huge ratings giant for Netflix at the time, uh, but it is just absolutely deplorable in execution, story, acting. There is nothing about The Ridiculous Six that is even endearing. I did not laugh once. In fact, I found myself offended and disgusted by the time it was over. Um, so that would be mine. Uh, I have seen at least uh, three-fourths of those movies. Never saw Ridiculous Six. I don't plan to, um, unless you do the worst uh, for a <laughs> bad pick in the distant future here. Um, but for the other ones, I mean, I, I generally would agree. I would say with, um, I mean, Seven Samurai Classic, I, one of my favorite experiences was seeing that in the theater in college. Uh, that movie works so thoroughly on a big screen. Um, and The Magnificent Seven I do quite like. I, I never quite loved it, but I still think like, oh, it's a solid sort of like Western remake of that perfect movie. Um, with Seven Samurai, um, and uh, there's a lot of great stuff like Eli Wallach, who you didn't mention that much, but is so great as the villain in that particular oh, yeah. movie. The Magnificent Seven remake, um, I remember seeing, and I remember just not having too many feelings either way about. Except I will say the two people actually that really stand out in that cast to me are one, Vince D'Onofrio, who was playing this like weird fur trapper guy who has a weird voice like this, who was pretty fun, I would say, in that movie. And then also, um, I apologize if I mispronounce, but uh. Byung Hun Lee, who was also um, Storm Shadow in the more recent G.I. Joe movies, not um, the most recent yeah, yeah. one, but the other ones. Right. Um, I thought his character was pretty stellar, too. Um, his relationship with Ethan Hawke, I thought was pretty fun. But otherwise, I generally agree that it's really forgettable and bad. And also was the movie that really started the fall of Chris Pratt for me. Because he's trying yep. so hard to be like, I'm a grizzled cowboy man. It's like, oh, Chris, no, you're not. You're you're a boy playing cowboy. <laughs> that's that's, right. that's just right. sad, dude. <laughs> but for my picks, um, I'll go ahead and start with uh, my two good. Uh, the first one is another one from director Walter Hill. And is another kind of play on the Man on a Mission movie that's set in a different type of um, setting that admittingly on paper sounds like it could be kind of dicey. And it necessarily i don't think it holds up incredibly well with some of the the way he portrays some of its characters but at the same time i think it's a really great setup that's mostly very well executed i have his 1992 movie trespass which basically is about um bill paxton again and also william sadler play two firemen who discover that like oh there is a giant stash of gold that this guy hid that we can uh, locate um, and they try and find it. But while they're there, they stumble upon a gang shooting and the gang is, has a huge cast that includes both ice T and ice cube who see bill Paxton while they're shooting down this guy. And are like, Oh shit, we have a witness here. We have to get rid of him and William Sadler. So it becomes a back and forth kind of like siege movie of sorts between those two groups. Um, that is also weirdly like it was made by Walter Hill uh, but also, it was a script that was written years ago by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale uh, before they ever became a thing. And it has a lot of their kind of trademarks. If you've ever seen, watched like the Back of the Future movies, how much there's like setup and payoff, this movie has a similar kind of track to it. And it still feels at the same time so different from any of the things they would have made. But I think the cast is really stellar. There's a lot of like really good scenes of tension, especially uh, once the. Uh, William Sather and Bill Paxton guys try and get an upper hand by kidnapping one of the gang members. I think creates a lot of interesting tension there. And I think it's a slight movie that I could see why it was kind of forgotten in the grand scheme of things, but I think is pretty fun overall. 
Um, nothing else like Ice Cube and Ice T are so good in that fucking movie, so stellar with maybe lesser care. It's a bit stereotypical with the roles, but I think they do a lot with it. Um, the other good one I have is uh, one from director William Friedkin, who made this uh, movie that came out around the time of Star Wars and nobody saw it. Uh, but I recently watched it, and it's pretty fucking great. Sorcerer, which stars Roy Scheider. Basically, it involves, like, we follow a bunch of different guys, uh, one of which is a guy who is uh, getting arrested for sort of insurance fraud that he's doing. Um, there's another person who has, uh, like, caused a bombing to go off. And then Roy Scheider, who plays a guy that has stolen from a church. Basically, all of them end up um, lying low after their various crimes in South America, where they are recruited to be a part of this mission that basically involves them transporting nitroglycerin that has been uh, preserved in this like really shaky sh like shack literally in the middle of nowhere to stop an oil fire that's been going on. And the only way they can stop is using this nitroglycerin, but because it's been stored so poorly in the shack, like the nitroglycerin is exposed and any wrong sort of like step could turn the nitroglycerin into a massive bomb that could explode the trucks that they're in. So it's Roy Scheid and all these other guys trying to transport two different trucks of this nitroglycerin across very shaky infrastructure, and it is one of the most tense movies I've ever seen. A whole sequence where they're trying to get a truck across like a fucking literally like rope hanging bridge that's dilapidated is like one of the most like, oh my god, are they gonna do it? Are they gonna get out of there? It's such a well-fucking-made movie that I, I'm astonished, like, wasn't at all recognized, even though Star Wars was such a big thing, obviously. At the same time, this should have gotten way more acclaim <laughs> and should have really been a movie that I didn't just see for the first time, like, a week ago. Stellar fucking movie I'd recommend to anybody. Uh, and then really quickly, my two bad ones. Uh, first one I have is Red which is the movie that had, like, Bruce Willis basically recruiting a bunch of, like, older assassins who are played by, like, John Malkovich and Helen Mirren and Martin Freeman. It's, it's basically just, like, an elaborate excuse for, like, oh, we're going to have all these old people in this action movie. It's basically where they got to, like, fight off against, like, I believe it's Brian Cox who's, like, the villain, if I remember correctly or something. I don't know. It is one of those, like, really boring ideas of, like, oh, hey, like, let's get all these great people, kind of like Monuments Men, to be, like, in a fun premise that would be interesting and the execution is really dull and it's really minor and it's just like such a disappointment of a movie that doesn't work whatsoever and the quote-unquote mission like it's so forgettable i'm even straining to remember what exactly their mission is um speaking of which another kind of very unmemorable movie um is act of valor which uh, came out in 2012 and the big hype around this movie was it's basically like about a bunch of military like u.s navy operatives that are trying to stop like a bunch of czech terrorists the big appeal was includes like a cast of some very vaguely recognizable actors but also actual u.s navy seals and no disrespect to those men and what they did for our country um but also it is very clear that they can't act that well and it is one of the more dull action film experiences i've ever like suffered through it is another one that's just like is it's so forgettable so dull and once again, it's another one where I can vaguely barely remember the mission. That's like, once again, I can't remember much about the men nor the mission in that particular case. So uh, those are my choices. I've seen all four of your movies. Trespass and Sorcerer are fucking dope. Trespass does not get any love, and it really should because it's super, super fun. Really tense, dude. There's a lot of tense shit in that movie, too. I really, really love it. Sorcerer is like, fucking one of the most criminally underseen movies that may, might exist. It, that's a stellar, stellar film. 
Uh, I remember not being too mad at the first red. I haven't seen it in a long time. I remember thinking red two was garbage. So I'm sure if I went back and watched red, I'd probably have pretty much the same feelings as you do. And uh, Act of Valor was uh, dog shit. Yes, dog shit indeed. But those are the movies that we'd uh, recommend to all you out there and also recommend you avoid. Uh, But we... uh, we want to thank all of you all for listening to our ramblings there, and also we want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thor Lally for the artwork for our show. Follow him on Twitter, at Night of Water. That's uh, night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. He does a lot of great art on there, and you can find all his other pieces via his Twitter. And we also want to thank our loyal Patreon subscribers. Thanks to you all for... Uh, contributing just one dollar a month and in exchange for that help we uh, give you some bonus podcasts and we get to have you vote in polls and uh, you know speaking of willem dafoe adam who we talked about extensively this week yeah. we'll be doing an entire episode finally about mr dafoe next month um and uh, you all get to choose the bad pick for that particular episode for my two choices uh starting uh, i believe at the time this will be up the poll will also be up uh, you all get to pick between um, the choices of either Speed 2 Cruise Control, <laughs> where uh, which I have not seen, but I've seen plenty of photos of Willem Dafoe's fucking face. Um, oh, boy. In that fucking okay. movie. Um, and then the other one is the Boondock Saints, which is kind of infamous for Daf- <laughs> Dafoe's over-the-top acting, which I think is very fun. Uh, everything else about that movie is fucking dog shit, at least to me. I do not like that movie whatsoever. I used to love it. I bet I'd hate it now. Ooh, this would be fun. That's a, that's a reason to maybe vote for that one. Who knows? Either one of those guys. That'll be, they'll be a lot of fun to talk about. But uh, we also want to recommend, uh, if you uh, are a patron, you also get to listen to bonus podcasts. Like, right, uh, recently we released Telebilgion, which was uh, our attempt to talk about some uh, TV shows uh, that we'd recommended to each other. And also On the Edge of Relevance, where we talk about more modern movies. Right now you can listen to us talk about The Green Knight, the David Lowry picture. Yeah, baby. And we did have some feedback in reference to the Telebilgion that we wanted to talk about here from James okay. Rodriguez, loyal patron and previous guest on the show, uh, who says, uh, Excellent discussion of a pair of two outstanding TV shows. If Adam does continue on Gravity Falls, I need an update. And as for shows you guys could cover, I have a few suggestions. Uh, Netflix's two-season wonder American Vandal, the show which made Mads Mikkelsen into internet hunky husband Hannibal, uh, something a bit more feel-good in Ted Laszlo. Uh, how about a classic with The Sopranos? My lockdown session has been the uh, British TV show Taskmaster. And I also recommend some anime like Demon Slayer, One Punch Man, My Hero Academia, or Attack on Titan. I've seen a few of those shows. Obviously, I love Hannibal. I love American Vandal. I have never seen a single episode of Hannibal. Ooh. That's interesting. Yep. Also, I love Ted Laszlo, which is currently on its second season. Also right haven't seen. Oh. It's so good. It's the reason I have Apple TV+. Plus. Oh, it's so feel-good. Um, and admittingly, you know, I've said this before, despite being Italian, I have not seen one single episode of Sopranos. Hey, me neither. <gasps> Mamma mia. Yep. Fuck off with the anime. <laughs> no, I don't want to watch any anime. God damn it. Keep the anime away from me. The only one of those I've seen is Attack on Titan. Yeah, my, my nephew made me watch a couple episodes of that with him. It was all right. Yeah, but I, I'm good. I watched at least the first season of Attack on Titan. I had heard after that it's not that great. So I might not take that recommendation. But who knows? Um, we, we definitely recommend anybody else. If you want to have TV shows to recommend for us the next time we do Telebilgion, uh, we would appreciate those. Especially if you are the patron for, like I said, just the one 
dollar a month. But uh, for more of our own antics, you can find us, Double H Double Bill, on Twitter and Facebook as at DEDWPod. And also we uh, recommend you submit uh, feedback to us, DoubleHDoubleBill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And if you can't support us monthly on the Patreon, uh, we recommend that you help us out with a bit of a kickback via buying one piece of moich from our T Public store at uh, the ESO T Public store. You'll find a link in the description where you can buy, you know, a cup or a T-shirt or a laptop bag, anything like that, with our lovely logo on it. It would really help us if you were to do what, Adam? Buy our merch. Buy our merch. Oh yeah, sing it. Sing it like Ella name. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Uh, well, if you want more of our individual antics, uh, we recommend that uh, you follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd as at the Not the Who's Tommy, where I share my musings and stuff. Um, I also do some writing at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, and I also uh, just recently officially became a staff writer at Film-Cred.com. And congratulations on that. Uh, you could find me on Twitter or Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. Or you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. Yes, and for more of us, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not dig into all the other great shows on the network or even dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for stuff we even did before we joined ESO. And you know, if you can't buy the merch or you can't support the Patreon for monthly for the $1, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. It really helps. I mean, what the fuck just do it it's that easy uh you know like tom said it already helps us out consider it a personal favor for uh thomas me i don't give a fuck i live on the edge yes he's the tom cody that's leaving and i'm just singing over here desperately just like tonight is what it means to be young (laughs) go ahead share my show but don't (laughs) see you when i see uh let the fire get started share the show around now adam we gotta get out of here but we gotta do our picking for next week's episode where as we mentioned mm-hmm. we usually do uh one person has two good movies one person has two bad movies and uh, most of the time uh, each of us has assigned number between one and ten for those choices and then the other person picks randomly number between one and ten and we get our good and bad choice keeping in mind that we do have the godfather rule in effect we're basically from now until may of 2022 when we have to use those before our next anniversary we have vetoes where basically if one of us hears a choice and we're like, you know, we don't want to actually cover that, not a big fan, we can say, actually, I'll take the cannoli, which means that that choice is evaporated and we get to go with the other choice, whatever that may be, because we don't hear that initially. Though, the big thing is, uh, those that are voted on by our Patreon subscribers, those choices are exempt from the vetoes, and that is the case for this week uh, that we're going to be doing the uh, next show because in honor of respect coming out the aretha franklin movie we are doing musician movies just movies that are mainly centered around musicians which weirdly streets of fire could have been eligible for if we did actually yeah yeah that's true but that's not our good pick for next week because adam you had a couple choices and the patrons ended up choosing between whiplash and ultimately the winner which we're staying with i can't veto it i'm trying to use that veto i can't because we're definitely covering desperado the 
1995 Robert Rodriguez film starring Antonio Banderas as a wandering mariachi guitar player who also has a lot of uh, artillery to use. Yes, and I am so excited. I, I, You know, the idea is I wanted to pick the obvious one and then just a fucking obscure one. And that's why I love our audience. They went with the fucking crazy choice, like the off-kilter choice. Desperado was such a huge movie for me growing up. I cannot wait to talk about it. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. And plus, we never covered a Robert, Robert Rodriguez movie on the show. That's true. Yeah, so there'll be a lot to talk about with that. But, Adam, I have my two bad choices. And you can veto potentially the choice that yeah. ends up happening here. So, for number between 1 and 10, please choose to get my choices. I'm going to go with number 2. Right at number 2. Speaking of, Fuck. it has uh, it, the title of this movie implies uh, a double, as it were to uh, people that look very similar, almost identical, with the infamous bad movie from 2013, The Identical, the Elvis Presley would-be fable. <laughs> I've, I've never even heard of this, i got to be honest. I've heard it's a... I have not seen it myself, but I've heard it's sort of an infamous bad movie that's like... Okay. Uh, do you want to... You could take the cannoli if you want. Do you want to take the no, cannoli? No, 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 no. I'm not going to take the cannoli only because I've never even heard of it. So I'm curious about it. Okay. Well, the so other we'll choice I had at the other end of the spectrum at number 10, I had uh, the infamous uh, collaboration between Cher and Christina Aguilera about burlesque dancers. Oh, fuck. Burlesque. Jesus. Am I so glad? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right. So, yeah. So the identical and desperado. Desperado. What Fair. the Another great weird double feature for the from the two of us. Uh, so yeah. that is the end of our episode, then everybody. But until then, keep on dancing and keep on dreaming about us. And keep looking for art. Oh, that great Bob Balaban once again. That was him, ladies and gentlemen. The special late guest, Bob Balaban. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking a break from a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, he's crashing on my futon. <laughs> has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.